Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the latest review edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks again for joining us. In a weekend of missed opportunities for the likes of Tottenham, Manchester City and Newcastle, we have a full set of games to discuss, as well as previewing four midweek games. Uh, in order to do that, I'm joined by Kristen Hanaj and Karthik Krishnayar. And gentlemen, what we'll talk about today in section one, we'll, we'll talk about the top four and the championship games. Uh, we'll talk about the relegation battle and uh, we'll update our listeners on other leagues in section two. And then finally in section three, we'll talk about a couple of games that had very little bearing on the uh, on the table itself, but some interesting games and we'll preview the midweek game. So let's start with section one here, guys. Let's start with the early kickoff on Saturday, Norwich, Manchester United. Uh, a very poor game to watch if, if you were, uh, you know, if you're a neutral or if you were some poor Manchester United supporter out in California having to wake up at 4.45 a.m. for this. Uh, very poor game. Martial was injured in the buildup and Rashford was rested and that resulted Karthik in a very little attacking outlay from Manchester United. Yeah, I was actually quite. Thankful. I, I uh, had uh, done the Orlando, uh, had been at the Orlando Red Bull game the previous night, and had uh, had gotten home very late, uh, a drive back from Orlando, and had had uh, uh, an assistant with me. So I, I was uh, hoping that the 7:45 a.m. Eastern time kickoff, mm-hmm. uh, 12:45 BST, would be a uh, a game that woke me up. But in reality, it was back to sleep. But it was a um, it was a um, a good win. I mean, I guess a resourceful win for Manchester United away to a team in in uh, Norwich that you would think would have been given their circumstance and, and their situation on the table a little more aggressive. And we've seen now Norwich in the last few weeks really play very defensively at the Emirates and finally concede a goal. And then in this game, a, a terrible defensive error, a terrible mistake by Basong uh, undid uh, some very good defensive work. But again, uh, sitting deep. Playing without the ball uh, at home when you need the result uh, for uh, as much time as they did before the uh, the Mata goal and, and the great Rooney move mm-hmm. uh, is going to doom you. So I'm I guess I'm just very disappointed that Norwich uh, is going down without a fight. They're going going down with a whimper. Chris, one of the players that the that was the talking point of the Louis Van Hall change uh, last last summer when uh, Van Hall finally had a whole summer to uh, bring in players that arguably he wanted um, was was uh, Memphis Depay. 
And Memphis had has basically had two really good games in a Manchester United shirt. One was in the Euro- Europa League, and the other one was a game away at Southampton around Christmas. And I'm wondering, in this game, I, I personally thought he was very poor in this game. And I, I'm wondering what you think of Memphis Depay's first season at Manchester United. It's been a struggle. It's been a real struggle for him. And I think it's partly the adjustment period, obviously. Arsene Wenger says it takes about a year for a player to adjust. I think, in fact, Man City's uh, head of recruitment said similar that it, it takes that adjustment time. And, I, and I've actually written on that issue in itself at the Yahoo recently. Mm-hmm. I think what you have to remember with, with Memphis is he's an exceptionally direct player. And if you watch him in Holland when he was with PSV, he would run at the opposition quite consistently. I also think he was in a very different style of team in the sense that the likes of Jorginho Vijnaldum, who was there, other players would create space for him. And I think if you're expecting him to go one-on-one and beat his man consistently when essentially there's not a great deal of space around him, you're going to be disappointed. Um, he's not someone, I think, when I look at him, that is a, a real complicated trickster as a way. I think actually he's about quick turns, quick movement, and exploiting a defender's poor positioning or, or lack of balance or, or that kind of situation. And it, it hasn't worked for him. And I think a large part of that is because of the setup that he's been provided, which hasn't been the smoothest of transitions for him from the air of his. Karthik, talk to me a little bit more about that. I think Chris raises some good points there. A player like Memphis Depay, who, as Chris pointed out, was the the spearhead of the attack when he was at PSV, comes into a team, a tactical system, where he's not anymore. And I guess we can make the same arguments about Angel Di Maria and a lot of other players who have come through with Van Hall. So at the end of the day, how much of the blame should we place on Memphis here? And how much should it go back to the fact that Van Hall is not getting the best out of almost every player that he signed? Well, I think uh, Chris has made some very good points about Memphis. He's a direct player. It takes time to settle in this league. I think maybe too much was put on him right away when when he signed and that remember they didn't uh, sign Martial until the the, de- the, the deadline last day. day so yep, yep. yeah a lot was put on Memphis that f- that first month of the season and i i think clearly he was thrown in at, at the deep end and then as Martial was signed and then Rashford began to emerge and and you saw that uh Lingard could play uh various roles for this team uh he was given a, a greater chance to acclimate but then what that also has done is it, it's just kind of blown his confidence so uh we, we'll see next season i mean i think again he's a guy von hall wanted and we don't know who's going to manage manchester united next season but there is a uh, uh there's a strong possibility there were a lot of cases in this league of guys not acclimating at first and then kicking on uh, uh after year two or three a uh, great example this season is Eric Lamella at Spurs, mm-hmm. who uh, was seen as a 35 million uh, quid bust, of the biggest signing uh, in, in terms of transfer fee in, in Spurs history, was seen as a complete bust his first two seasons at the club. And I think uh, this season, uh, he, he probably hasn't gotten the credit he deserves for how good he's been uh, on a very good Spurs side. Uh, so sometimes coming from other leagues in Europe, and, and we know the jump from the Dutch league is, is quite dramatic. We, there are a lot of players who do settle, but there are others... Uh, Classy is another guy at, at uh, Southampton that we had huge hopes for this season. Dutch player that ha- hasn't exactly uh, lived up to those to that level of expectations. So uh, I think it, it's a bit early to write off Memphis, but again, he's, he, he was very poor uh, uh, in this game. He's been very poor uh, for the most part uh, this season. Yeah, Memphis is still in the danger of becoming the next player to be hit by the curse of 
the number seven shirt since uh, and uh, since uh, I was going to say Antonio Valencia left it since Cristiano Ronaldo uh, left United. We've had Michael Owen have that shirt, Antonio Valencia, uh, Angel Di Maria, and now Memphis Depay. Not I really. sense that's part of the problem, though. In, in some ways, is that again you're you're putting not you specifically. I mean the the, the entire Manchester United me, organization, everything is is putting that pressure on a, a young guy mm-hmm. of. You have the number seven shirt, do it. And I acknowledge the argument of pressure produces diamonds, all this kind of thing, and he needs to be tested in that way and, and grow to the next level. I do question, though, just how much help he was given in transitioning. And, and actually, if you look at the players that do succeed, Carty touched on Lamella. Of course, he's had time. He's also had the benefit now of, of Mauricio Pochettino, who, as well as being a compatriot, is someone that understands what he needs. And I just question if Van Hall understands what Memphis needs because he does have this approach with young players where it's throw them in the deep end and the ones that sink sink the ones that swim then I can take credit for yeah I think you guys have made some great points yeah. and points that I agree with uh, I think Van Hall's handling of young players is uh, not as great as people believe that it is um, let's move ahead guys and and talk about the West Ham versus uh, Swansea game Chris when you and I were doing the preview we were talking uh, we were discussing Payet and talking about how well West Ham has done in certain situations along with uh, Mark Noble as well. Uh, this game, this result was a complete surprise to me. West Ham had a lot more to play for, but I thought Swansea just ripped through the West Ham defense on multiple occasions. Mikel Antonio, who I think has been a very good player for West Ham this season, was guilty for multiple, uh, maybe up to three of those four goals. So, Chris, your thoughts? It's... It's so difficult with West Ham because, again, it's that notion of being inconsistent. And you look at some of the games they've lost this season, they've tended to be against teams they really should be beating. Um, I remember they came to St. James's Park and, and I was there and I fully expected them to win quite comfortably. And actually, they were really tepid and really poor. And it, it highlighted the notion that actually Dimitri Payet is, is so central to them in an attacking sense that if he's either not feeling it or you can nullify him, then you're going to stop West Ham doing a lot of damage. And in relation to this game, actually, I thought it was the defence that let them down. I, I didn't see anything of the the West Ham stability and, and structure at the back that I'd seen in previous weeks. And I think that is what will stop them getting the Champions League this season. But I think, again, you have to, to contextualise it with the expectation of the start of the season. There was an uncertainty about Slavon Bilic when he arrived. Certainly, he'd done a lot at, at Besiktas, and, and there was those who were fans of him. I can remember reading just as many people saying that he would tank and things would struggle and it would go south for him very quickly. So they've achieved a lot this season. I'm sure West Ham fans will be disappointed, though, to leave the, the bowling ground. Because I think that was the last game, wasn't it, at the bowling ground? Right. Well, uh, no, no, the but, United game. Uh, no, no, the Manchester United game is. Yeah. yeah. It's a penultimate game. Thankfully, they have the, the opportunity to at least leave on a, a potential high. Um, with that, uh, but I'm sure they'll be disappointed that they haven't been able to secure that top four. Karthik, talk to me about uh, Swansea because I I can picture the gaffer sitting here uh, wondering <laughs> why we're not talking about Swansea some more, given that they just beat West Ham four one. Why is it that the a team that has the likes of Gomish and Ayu and Baloshi and uh, uh, Sigurdsson and Key has struggled to put up good performances consistently this season? I know we've we've talked about some performances that have been uh, f- pretty good from them this season, but in general, they they have underwhelmed. 
Well, let's um, let's just uh, first give them praise for this match because, uh, again, I, I was telling actually my assistant that I mentioned that went to, with me to the Orlando New York game the other day that um, Wayne Routledge is a player that uh, was always an underwhelming player until he got to Swansea, and and then you've got a guys uh, like Joe Allen, and we're going to talk about Joe Allen later in the show because he scored a goal today for Liverpool, but guys like Joe Allen, Scott Sinclair, uh, and others, or Wilfred Bonet, who've been, uh, Michu, who've been outstanding in Swansea system. Sigurdsson, who was outstanding for Swansea, left, uh, hadn't done as well, uh, came back, and it's been great. Barini's another one that was better at Swansea than, than anywhere else he's been. That there's something about the club uh, maximizing the, um, the potential of players, and that kind of faded this season for some reason, but then uh, in this game, we saw Routledge get that opening goal, play really, really well. I thought, and I think he's been playing well, better of late. And these last two weeks, Swansea's been rampant. Uh, Key was good and, and very influential in the midfield. He's been in and out of the team this season. Uh, and uh, uh, Gomez has been frustrating, but he still does a lot of things other than score goals that are useful. And I know um, the gaffer is listening. He, he may want to... Uh, uh, discusses with me offline, but uh, there there is a value to Gomez, and, and there's a value to Gomez, uh, particularly in a game uh, like this when you bring him on late, uh, and he came on late for Wayne Routledge, and uh, you've got teams on the ropes, that, and, and, and you can just really go for the uh, sword at that point. So, uh, Goodalene has um, has made an impact now, finally, on this side. We've seen a, a really confident, uh, almost washbuckling team these last two weeks against Liverpool and West Ham. They, they weren't playing Norwich and Newcastle. They were playing Liverpool and now at, at uh, the bowling ground against West Ham, who um, have been one of the stories of the season. I guess we'll do a bad game because even that run of draws they had, I thought I thought they were the better team in each of those uh, four games, including the draw against Leicester, the eventual champions. Uh, so they were do a bad game, but it, it wasn't that they um, that they uh, uh, had a bad day at the office even though they were due one. They couldn't get into the office. Swansea was so good right, in the first 20, right. 20 or 25 minutes of this match. So um, I know that might be kind of a, a weak analogy, but uh, the point I'm trying to make is I think the last two weeks you've seen Good Ayin's work. He had some health issues after he came uh, over to England uh, from the uh, Pozzo family of, of, of clubs. Uh, and uh, maybe now he, he's tempted to stay. Maybe he's tempted to uh, to continue in, in this role. Otherwise, uh, Swansea's going to have to make a decision about uh, manager, if they want to bring Brendan Rodgers back or if they want to go another direction. Uh, I think Rafa Benitez, given their style, is probably a poor fit, but maybe Goodayin will stay on in the job. Uh, I, certainly based on the last two weeks, I, I would give him the opportunity to if he wants to. Chris, Goodayin took over when Swansea were, I think, just two points above relegation back in January. Um, you see him staying at Swansea after this? I mean, Swansea's had a great list of managers recently. Um, maybe Francesco Goodayin takes them into uh, another era where they can maybe even try for uh, Europe next season? I think with these kind of situations, I always try and take a little bit of an insight from what's being reported. And the fact that there's been talk of Brendan Rodgers coming in, the, f- the fact that those reports don't seem to go away at any point, that makes me think that the club or someone inside the club is allowing those reports to continue, if that makes sense. There's no yeah, one absolutely. saying that it's it's complete. Tosh. I also think that, that someone like Gideline and the position that he's in, and also, and also not just his, his age, but his health as well, 
it feels as if the summer would just be a good separation point for both. He came and he did what was asked. The, the job was completed. They've, they've survived actually quite comfortably. They've also got a, a good signing in, in Alberto Palossi as well for next season. Then it's the point to just cut and, and give someone else a try. Perhaps Brendan Rodgers, who knows? The the man, I think, is, is still to, to be decided in that sense. But I, I, I don't see being cast iron, I actually think they come to the start of next season, Swansea City will likely have a, a different manager at the helm. All right, yeah, Udoyan turned 61 uh, this October, so um, yeah, his health issues are something that we have discussed. Let's move ahead and talk about the health of Everton as a football club. Uh, th- they played Leicester City, the champions, this week. Uh, Leicester, of course, the, the big talking points was the, the championship, oh, the trophy presentation, uh, Andres Buch, uh Bocelli playing, uh, singing before kickoff and, uh, all of that fun stuff. It, it was a Jamie Vardy party and a party all over Leicester City. But for me, as we talked about Chris before we, uh, in the preview, the big talking point was Everton. Here was a chance for them to show that they can hang with the big boys, but they were absolutely, they were just abject in this game. Uh, I know Vardy scored an early goal and that puts them on the back foot, but even past that, Lukaku looked like he didn't care. Uh, Barkley tried to influence the game, but he struggled a very, another very poor f- performance, uh, and kind of drives home everything Karthik has said, doesn't it, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> you noticed Karthik how I didn't go to you on that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my views of Roberto Martinez are well established. So we'll let Chris have this one. I, I think I can speak louder than words in, in the case of Everton and the actions of the Everton players are, are not a group desperately fighting to protect the manager. They seem a lot more self-motivated in that sense. And again, as you, you put it in your sort of question there, they were abject. That's the best way to describe it. And they have been for a few weeks now, but they've really not looked any different. And that's with all the reports and with everyone saying that Martinez has to go. That's when you would imagine if the players did really care for the manager, they would up their work rate, if nothing else. Right. And yet they've been lacking in quality and work rate. And, Again, I, I said elsewhere that, that for me, the, the Roberto Martinez situation at, at Everton is really starting to parallel the one at Wigan in the sense that there might be nice moments, nice interchanges, but can they get the job done? Um, there's an interview with Toby Alderweireld in, in H, I think it's HLN, the, the Belgian uh, sports paper, in which he said that at Ajax, he learned how to play football. At Atletico Madrid, he learned how to win games. And that's my issue with, with Roberto Martinez's it's a lot of theory, but not much achievement in the sense that, again, the FA Cup was great. It's just one day. It's one moment. Over a sustained period, I've not seen him achieve a great deal. If anything, I've seen lots of pretty stuff with not much end product. And again, when he moved to Everton, the cons- consensus was better players, better results. It just hasn't been the case. And, and I strongly believe that Come the summer, with this new investment that Everton have secured, you'll likely see Roberto Martinez told he can can depart the football club. Karthik, uh, anything to add to that? That uh, what Chris has said? No, I, I think I think it's been uh, very clear for a long time, and I, I love the analogy Chris brought about Alderweireld. He learned to play football in Diego Simeone's system, which is defensive, organized, organized. And you're accountable to your teammates. There was no accountability at Everton. There was no accountability at Wigan to your teammates because everybody was taken by the uh, smooth passing, the smoothness in the media of the manager and, and his ability to articulate 
particularly his principles around football. But the results uh, have been abject. Look, at Wigan, uh, they, they stayed in the league for several years by drawing games. Uh, let's not forget that. And by having teams, in, even in their region of the country, country, Blackburn, Bolton, uh, Blackpool, others that were having financial difficulties and uh, went down before they did. Uh, and uh, they, they were being kept in the league by those uh, by those sorts of factors. He comes to Everton. They have a strong structure and organization and shape always under David Moyes. And Moyes never had the budget to spend. I mean, for years and years and years, he had to go with guys like Victor and Nietzsche be up front because he didn't. He would have to take uh, players on loan uh, because they didn't have the, the budget to go out and get guys. And, Take guys like Royce and Drenthe, uh, just kind of roll the dice. Play Timmy Cahill as, a, as an uh, out-and-out striker, as a number nine at, uh, at various times. Play Fellaini in a more advanced role because he didn't have the guys, uh, uh, the, the transfer budget. Osman on the wing. I mean, he used to do all kinds of creative things tactically with his team, even though for some reason Moyes got the reputation of being a very boring manager versus Martinez, who would bring this 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 style to Everton. Well, those those fans, and there were a lot number of Everton fans, they might deny it now, but uh, who thought that David Moyes uh, had run its course and, look, we need something uh, that can take us to the next level. We want to play, we want to watch good football. Well, you got your wish. You're watching uh, open, entertaining football where your team is shipping goals and, and chances constantly. And, and that's what's happened the last two seasons at Everton. The first season, uh, which was an inherited team from Moyes and a couple, couple of nice additions that you have to give Martinez credit for. Uh, Delafeu, Lukaku, and, and others uh, elevated them that, that, that first season. But the last two have been as poor as Everton has been since uh, they were fighting relegation under Walter Smith. So I, I think the time is up. And um, I love the analogy Chris brought in about Aldo Morel because you wonder about John Stones now. Where is he going to learn his football? Where is he going to learn to be a proper footballer? Uh, he's not going to be the kind of center back we saw Aldo Morel uh, perform at the level he did this season at Spurs, unless he gets a proper manager who can teach him defensive tactics and accountability to teammates at Everton, unless he's moving this summer, which he very well could be. Yeah, not only at the managerial post, I think there will be huge turnover at Everton uh, personnel-wise. I think Lukaku will be gone almost certainly, uh, very likely that Barkley and Stones will move on. Of course, in Stones' case, his transfer, uh, his level of transfer, the amount of money he, uh, the team earns for him will be substantially less than what Chelsea were ready to pay for him about a year ago. Let's, uh, we, we're not going to really discuss Leicester because the big talking point about Leicester is when we analyze the season as a whole, which we'll do when we do a, a season review in a couple of weeks. So let's go ahead and move on to the Tottenham Southampton game, uh, Karthik, I'll stick with you here. A huge opportunity missed for for Spurs at home to extend the lead above from uh, away from Arsenal. Uh, Southampton have hit some good form, and last week we talked about how they may or may not be next season's Leicester City. But the big talking point here is is definitely a capitulation by Spurs, especially after they took the lead early in the game. Yeah, again, th- third straight match where. Spurs have taken an early lead and, and uh, given it away. The West Brom game, which uh, basically handed the title to uh, to Leicester. Then the uh, Chelsea game that confirmed Leicester as the champions. And now uh, this match, which has opened the door for Arsenal to uh, catch Spurs. And look, Spurs have had a great season. They wanted to win the title. Uh, but I think for so many of their supporters, it's a psychological thing. You just want to finish ahead of Arsenal when you've had this, this sort of season. Now they go to St. James Park next week, perhaps needing a result to, to, to stay ahead of Arsenal, quite likely needing a result to finish ahead of Arsenal. And you, 
you don't know what's going to be on the line for Newcastle in that game. A very difficult ask. They put themselves in a, in a bad position. Um, real quickly, I, I know we might not want to address this, and this is going to get us a lot of um, nasty mail. Um, I feel the FA, and, and Dembele would have missed this game anyway. Okay, I think he, he, uh, a ban was in order three games would be fine. I, I think the FA has set a very poor precedent by suspending Dembele for six matches when they only suspended Fellaini for three. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and I, I know that's a view shared by some other uh, writers in, in, in the UK, some other uh, people who cover the sport, but uh, Spurs now have a, are staring down the barrel of a gun for next season. The first month, they're, they're going to be without Musa Dembele, and you see how kind of open they are in midfield when he doesn't play. Uh, there's a lot of stuff we don't notice that he's done this season, uh, keeping the ball moving, keeping things tidy in midfield, covering when uh, Dele Ali makes those, uh, and of course, uh, you know, Ali's also had his disciplinary problems, but makes those surging runs, and, and, and those sorts of things that um, we'll be missing for the first month of next season, and uh, the first month of the season is, is uh, uh, other than these last three games, represents the gap between Leicester and Spurs uh, this year, so they don't want to get off to another bad start, so I, I just want to register my disappointment in the FA's kind of very subjective uh, uh, administering of justice. Dembele should have been suspended, but again, there was provocation. There, everything had kicked off in that match. I'm not quite sure why they chose to make an example of him and and not of uh, Fellaini in, in the in the Leicester uh, Manchester United match or Costa. Uh, maybe they've suspended Costa so much they don't want to give him another six game <laughs> ban. But uh, I was disappointed by that. Chris, talk me talk to me about that subjectivity. Uh, Fellaini gets banned for uh, a hair. For, for an elbow after Robert who pulled his hair. Uh, but we all know Fellaini is very guilty of that. Pretty much every game he elbows someone, uh, even as a Manchester United supporter and a, a defender of Fellaini in general. I, I find him to be abhorrent at times with his elbow. Uh, and then you have this situation here where Dembele gets a much longer ban. I don't have a, a conclusive answer. If I'm plucking one from, from the area, I think possibly because he's attempted to gouge an eye, which is a bit more of a serious uh, attack in the sense that they could blind someone, whereas, again, an elbow, for the most part, while a nasty thing to do, undeniably, is probably not as serious in terms of the damage it could do. That That's the, the honestly only theory I have yeah. on the whole situation, as, as I, terrible as they both are. Yeah. The irony being, like, with with the discussions on concussion and stuff, some might argue that an elbow to the head or the face is maybe slightly even more dangerous than an eye gouge. But like like you say, there's, there's no way to understand why the FA does what it does. So let's maybe leave that conversation there and move ahead to the big game from this weekend, which was Manchester City, Arsenal, and Karthik. I'll come back to you. Huge opportunity for Manchester City to almost guarantee... Uh, that United were not going to be making the fourth place. But now, with the draw, uh, and we get into the game, but talk to me about the repercussions of this result first. Oh, it's just a culmination of City's poor play since the middle of September. And, and um, it, the repercussions are that Manchester United has uh, the door open. They they, uh, they control their own destiny. They can win both matches and Get in, they uh, get into the Champions League for next season and potentially save Von Hall's job. They can also take four points and potentially get in, uh, right. based on where Manchester City is going next week, which is to Swansea. We've just gotten done talking about how well good they can also they can also win just one game and go go through. Yeah, right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah so they yeah. they and their final game is at home against Bournemouth, who have effectively um, uh, shipped the season in. So, 
since they got to 40 points and uh, are not really playing very good football of late. Right. So um, I, I, I think that uh, this is uh, an a- absolute uh, stunner because uh, to, to, to folks because there has been a narrative out there that Manchester United is struggling and going through this terrible season, whereas with Manchester City, the even though I had sounded the alarm bells uh, months ago, uh, I know a lot of people just think I'm fatalistic because it's my club, but uh, th- there were clear signs that things were going badly, and uh, um, nobody really jumped on to talking about how poor City was until really in the last six to eight weeks. And now um, City's in a position where Pep Guardiola may start in, in Europa League. Uh, that having been said, I don't think it's a complete disaster. I mean, part of me thinks, given that there was this ridiculous level of expectation around Guardiola coming, being in Europa League may make it easier for him to focus on the Premier League, understanding right. English football, and not having to worry about Europe. Uh, that That's one uh train of thought and one that I'm uh, actually not I don't want to say I'm wed to but I'm seriously contemplating it might be a good thing Chris the uh, the come from behind draw uh, leading from led from a goal from Sanchez uh, some brilliant interchange I think the the game kind of changed once Walcott uh, came on excuse me when Walcott came on but in general Arsenal didn't look that good I I thought I thought City were the better team overall uh, personally I think Karthik might disagree but uh not a great performance from Arsenal, but did just enough, especially given the Tottenham result, uh, to, to get the result that they wanted away from home. Definitely. And I think it's vital for Wenger because, again, he's chosen to define himself by that top four inclusion throughout his career. It's It's been the explanation for why trophies haven't been as, as consistent at the football club. So to potentially lose that would be huge for him. I think it would make his position untenable. Um, to be truthful with you. In terms of their performance, yeah, I, again, I didn't see anything that was, was too brilliant. Obviously, Jack Wilshire is, is back, which, again, I imagine is, is a big boost for them, potentially for England as well, whether you, you think he should be in there or not. Personally, I, I don't think he should. I think his injury record is, is not nearly as far behind him as it needs to be for me to, to trust him in a tournament. Um, you have to put his talent aside, I think, at this point and, and look at just how much he's played. I just think Arsenal do need a, a little bit of a an overhaul in the summer. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that we saw these stories about Walcott being allowed to leave, about Arthur Chamberlain being allowed to leave. Because again, they're the sort of players that, that want to talk about him showing too much loyalty to the wrong individuals. They're some of the culprits, I think. In the sense that, again, I admire him very much for investing in two very young players, because that is a, a crapshoot, to, to borrow an American term. They haven't delivered and, and there comes a point where you have to accept that they're not going to deliver and that's not an easy thing to do because it's essentially swallowing your pride and, and accepting that you've made at least one mistake in purchasing them in the first place they need to grow out and they need to start buying quality now I think that's the big issue for them is the, the idea of buying quality for tomorrow is great mm-hmm. it also needs to be supplemented by buying quality for, for the here and now because that's what will, will elevate you and you could also argue that's what will raise the level of those players with that potential I'm I'm really disappointed about the Wilshire thing, honestly, to to hear this week. Uh, And I I have a great deal of time for Roy Hodgson, as I know Chris does. But uh, guys like Mark Noble, who can't get a look from England, who plays a similar role to Wilshire. Uh, Danny Drinkwater, who's been brilliant this season for the league champions, Leicester City. Uh, Those are two guys I would take, uh, especially given that they've stayed fit this season. 
over a Wilshire to to a major tournament. I mean, this is uh, this game is quite a shock to me. And and uh, now that Danny Welbeck is injured and appears like he will miss the Euros, which is a, a blow for England. Uh, maybe that's another an additional spot they could use. Uh, they don't necessarily have to go like for like with another attacking player. Maybe they can include a Drinkwater or a Noble or someone like that. Yeah, especially we also know that Ox is out as well, so that's another attacking right, position right. that that's opened up. And and honestly, Sturridge is just one sprint away at any given time from being injured again. So uh, injuries are starting to hurt England, as they are Belgium, and as they are many other teams. Suspensions are hurting France. So uh, the Euros will be interesting uh, in terms of what players actually end up missing out. Karthik, I want to stick with you to give me your thoughts on. Uh, I did get, I got a chance to watch. Pellegrini's speech, uh, his last game at the at the Had, uh, and I have got this sense from many city supporters, not not you, but many city supporters, especially on the wonderful world of Twitter, who have been very dismissive of Pellegrini, and uh, I think that echoed in the fact that the stadium was at best fifty percent filled when Pellegrini gave his uh, farewell speech today. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm embarrassed for our club, honestly. For, for these supporters, I think a lot of them are front runners. Even the locals in Manchester have become front runners mm-hmm. uh, because of the whole bitter thing. We've been called bitters for years by United supporters. Mm-hmm. It rings ho- uh, true here because uh, we've now become front runners in the same way they are, complaining about uh, little things, not appreciating accomplishments for uh, 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 of a manager and someone who's given uh, three, three seasons to the club and has delivered three trophies, three major trophies to this club, mm-hmm. three trophies in three years. That's a good return. Right. Uh, especially given our history, that's a great return. And there has been a consistent effort by so many in the Manchester City supporters community to blame Pellegrini for all of the problems this season and just say, well, uh, we've got the best manager in the world coming in. It's going to be completely different next year. There are structural issues with this, uh, with, with this uh, side. There are um, uh, problems with the director of football not buying properly and refreshing the squad properly. There have been the impact of financial fair play. There has been uh, a lot of injuries, although other clubs have had a lot of injuries too. Uh, but there, there's just a lot of factors here. And I think Pellegrini has been somehow able to, at times when Manchester City's players had checked out this season, been able to get one more good performance out of them uh, time and again, including today. Day, right, I mean, I'm I'm lamenting the result because it's a culmination of of, of many months of inconsistency and in right. poor play. But yes, Manchester City, I agree with you, was the better team today. Uh, Pellegrini's always been able to get that one more performance out of this side because the players and those who work at the football club genuinely like this man. I I'm not that. sure that they would. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure they'll genuinely like Pep Guardiola. They might have it all of him. I'm not sure they're going to genuinely like him. They didn't genuinely like Roberto Mancini. Right. So, oh, um. You know, a year from now, we could be having this conversation about how uh, how criminal it was of Manchester City to have treated, uh, 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 to have undermined Pellegrini and, and the supporters to have treated him with so much disrespect. And I, and I think we probably will be having at least some of that conversation. I, I was just appalled by it. I have to say that. No, I, I think you're right. And I think uh, any reasonable City supporters would agree with you because I remember, uh, you know, five, not maybe five, six years ago, Manchester United supporters still having the famous clock at the at the stadium that that celebrated the fact that City hadn't won anything in over 30 years. Uh, and now we're at a point where City are on at least on the pitch stronger than Man United. And I feel like a lot of the City supporters have very quickly forgotten uh, what has happened in the interim and are expecting things that maybe they shouldn't be expecting. All right, so we'll wrap uh, section one up with that 
uh, conversation. And when we come back for section two, we'll really get into the details of uh, the relegation battle, uh, some very interesting and, well, let's just say some very surprising results in the relegation battle. So we'll be right back with section two of the World Soccer Talk podcast. The two games that we're going to discuss in Section 2 will be Sunderland's surprising win over Chelsea and Villa's, I would say again, surprising draw with Newcastle. Uh, both these results were not what I had predicted. Maybe maybe Chris, when we did the preview, uh, was a little bit closer to predicting these results, especially the Newcastle one. Uh, he was... I was a lot more, uh, I was even looking at the goal difference, whereas Newcastle, whereas Chris was being more head, uh, had a better head on his shoulders. So Chris, let's start with the Villa Newcastle game since we are talking about that. Uh, like I said, I, I thought this was a game that Newcastle would win and maybe even win by a couple of goals, but it did not play out like that. Newcastle were the better team overall, definitely. Uh, but other than maybe a couple of chances for Mitrovic and that one clear cut chance for Colback didn't create a lot of clear cut chances themselves. Yeah, you, you saw a microcosm for the season in that sense that when they needed players to, to score big chances, they just couldn't do it. It right. was the same in the reverse game at St. James's Park that between Sim De Jong and, and Mitrovic, they had, had really good chances. Um, De Jong's in particular was one of arguably the, the most bizarre misses you'll see this season. Hmm. They, they couldn't put it away and consequently they're now the only team in the Premier League that hasn't beaten Aston Villa this season. There's the, the most damning statement for why a football team is being relegated, I think. It's, it's also what you have to remember is, is that, and I, I can't explain the foundations of this. Aston Villa and Sunderland have a very weird relationship in the sense that they both take immense pleasure in seeing Newcastle suffer and, and struggle. Sunderland, of course, totally understand. You can read reams and reams about that. Why Aston Villa takes such pleasure from it, I genuinely have no idea. Um, they obviously relegated Newcastle last year and, right. uh, not last year, last time, last excuse time. me. 2009 and had the big sob on the time banner who's your next messiah and or deck um who were two kind of tv presenters from from newcastle quite famous in, in england again they did similar they chanted sunderland a lot they showed a lot of sunderland shirts and it it's just a bit bizarre i mean again i, I can't fully understand it but it to to borrow what i just townsend said about crystal palace last week i think aston villa came up to try and relegate newcastle and, and fair play, you could argue they've, they've just succeeded in doing that. But I'll, I'll never truly understand it, which is much to say as Newcastle themselves didn't didn't do any favours because they had chances and, and didn't put them away. Karthik, uh, talk to me a little bit about this game as well. I, from, my, from my perspective, other than the few chances that Newcastle had, Villa actually created a little bit in this game. We, we obviously don't have to get into too much of the details with Villa because we don't know what their squad is going to be like <laughs> after this summer. But uh, talk right. to me a little bit about this game. Yeah, I guess um, we all had a, a good pop at Julian Lescott a few weeks ago when he said that the players were would be playing freer because of relegation. Yeah. I, maybe he, it just came out the wrong way. This is why sometimes tweets, and I know better than just about anyone how dangerous tweets can be. Uh, I've not had a few uh, doozies in my uh, in my time also, but uh, it usually seems like to Villa discuss played... near a cosmos, but not usually the. Right, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think um, Villa has played actually with more freedom. I think the Westcott's correct uh, since they've been relegated. They, they they don't seem to have the pressure on them. I guess is what he was trying to convey. And in this game, and actually he was one of the really good players in this game. Mm -hmm. uh, they look seem well organized. Uh, Newcastle, which it seems so um, uh, energetic. And, and, uh, and had been pushing the last 
last few weeks under Rafa Benitez in a way we had not seen them under Steve McLaren since the very early days of, of McLaren's tenure, uh, just fell flat uh, in, in this match. And, and you're right. I mean, I thought Villa uh, seemed very comfortable, seemed very good value for this draw. So um, I don't know. There are some weird relationships between yeah. the Midlands and uh, the Northeast. I mean, the Coventry-Sunderland one is another uh, is another strange one through history where uh, uh, no club has done more damage to Coventry and to Sunderland than Coventry. And I think Coventry not being in the top flight of English football anymore is might be the reason why Sunderland now uh, is on their longest run of staying in the top flight in in the post-war era. I mean, uh, and, and I know we're going to get to their game in a minute, but uh, it looks like it's going to continue. Yeah, another player that was really good was Kieran Clark. I thought he had an excellent game, some great last-ditch efforts. It was a kind of performance from a, from a player that came through the youth ranks that you would have expected to see earlier on this season. But anyway, credit to Kieran Clark. Uh, Chris, let me ask you this. This is something that you, Karthik, and I wanted to discuss last week, but I failed as my uh, duties as a host and forgot to ask this this hypothetical question. We were discussing what would have happened if Benitez had taken over earlier. Uh, and I think we were all in agreement that Newcastle might not have been in the position they are in right now. They wouldn't be, exactly. And uh, again, it's all hypotheticals, it's all ifs and buts and, and that sort of thing. I, I think what you can say is that the form would have been significantly better because you just have to look at the way they're playing now. They're much harder to beat. They're actually keeping consistently more clean sheets. I don't think personally they were even remotely troubled against Aston Villa. Um, I would say they were a little bit more lucky in the Swansea game. You could say maybe similar about the Palace game. But much like with, with Sunderland and Samardes, they've become harder to beat. And I think if you give him the those, those games, the ones particularly, uh, I think it was one against Stoke, there's one against Bournemouth at home as well. Games that are potentially winnable because Bournemouth, I think, are incredibly inconsistent. Then you have a much greater potential of staying up. The problem was, and, and the problem I think will always be in Newcastle until the ownership and, and those at the, the top end of the front office realise it, is they think they always know best and they always try to wait until the very last minute to do something. And the problem is, is that if you wait until, say, there's 10 games left, it, it's not enough time for a new manager to change things to the point that needs to be. It's the same with, again, allocating more funds in January when when you've tried to skimp through by spending the bare minimum. That's the issue with Newcastle. It's the bare minimum consistently. It's the bare minimum with uh, the recruitment in terms of how much they spend. It's the bare minimum for, for even silly little things like how much they afford to the media team's budget. So... Newcastle, to, to give you guys an insight, has one of the smallest media teams, uh, I would argue, in the top few divisions. And credit to them, they work frighteningly hard, knowing them as I do. Even then, there's only so much that, that two men can do, which is essentially how, how big the team is. Mm. And it's those little things that then all culminate into this giant bubble of the players don't have a relationship with the fans. Because I've long advocated that actually the best way to build that relationship is through your media channels through interviews that, that kind of stuff it means that when things get tough they really don't care for them that much anyway so it's it's such a, a convoluted issue in that sense that i just have so little sympathy for the likes of mike ashley and uh, lee charnley because they put themselves in this position consistently they they keep thinking they're smarter than the industry yet they have next to no experience in that industry and it's it's frustrating to watch from a fan perspective it's laughable to watch from just a, a neutral's perspective. 
And I hope that the summer they actually start and think we need to change. It, it can't be everyone else's fault that we're in this position six years on from, from the last time. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of what you said. I think Mike Ashley... Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead, Garlic. Oh, I was going to say, well said by Chris. I, uh, I, I've heard from Chris and others that have covered Newcastle, all of those uh, those uh, complaints, and I think that, that read like a manifesto of a, of a journalist who covers Newcastle United and as a, uh, the fan in Chris that uh, grew up a, a lo- a loving Newcastle mm-hmm. United, and I would urge everybody to listen to that uh, because it is a club beyond the football pitch that has serious structural problems, a serious problem at the top, and relegation is is probably a good thing for the club because of all of these things. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, that, that's the cruel reality. Uh, yeah, that's too bad. Because I, I, I really did think after this week, we would be talking about how Sunderland is going to get relegated. But guys, they managed to beat Chelsea in a game that for a majority of the game, a lot of the game, I thought they had no way that they would win this game. A huge 3-2 win over Chelsea. Karthik, I'll come to you first. First of all, that Kaziri goal is one of the goals of the season. It, it oh, was yeah. absolutely magnificent. What a volley uh, out of the top drawer, left foot, top corner, brilliant. But let's start with Chelsea first, Karthik. The player that I think uh, has been missing for a majority of the season that I think was the star of last season was Nemanja Matic. And I thought in this game, for uh, for all of Chelsea's success uh, attacking-wise, I thought he was the best player on the pitch for either team. Yeah, I, I can definitely buy that. And, and I, I was happy to see him have a good game. It's been it's been a while. I think his confidence was shot by the time Mourinho got the sack. And then uh, he then came in and decided he was going to play Mikel in that role. And that stabilized things because Matic was being asked to do things that were unnatural to his his game by Mourinho when things started started to go bad. So uh, I'll buy that. Uh, Kaziri, I just want to point out that uh, while Big Sam went to the continent and got him mm-hmm. uh, and the creative spark that he's been, uh, Newcastle spent uh, similar money on or more money on John Joe Shelby. That uh, if mm-hmm. you just want a reason why we're right. talking about Sunderland probably staying in the league and in Newcastle getting relegated, they, you can even just look at those those two transfers right there, head to head. And and uh, I, I, one thing I would say is is that I think something that both Sunderland and Newcastle did in January was they identified what their squad needed. And so I appreciate the comparison you draw, but I also think that Newcastle needed someone like John Joe Shelby to pull the strings. Where I think Sunderland were much smarter was that they assessed how those players would fit in with those around them and what they would need for those players to succeed. So if you take Lamin Kone, for example, big physical defender, very brutish, perhaps not the greatest technically, not someone that could really start things from the back. You go and you buy Jan Kirchhoff instead, someone who can do that and complement Kone in that sense. With Newcastle, the, the signings were made, yes, they had addressed problems, but if you're going to play John Joe Shelby, you need someone who's highly energetic to play alongside him and to essentially cover for the lack of ground that he refuses or, or can't make up. That's where I think Sunderland were very smart in their business, in the sense that, yes, they, they've done their due diligence on these players, and that deserves credit. But I also sense that in buying the players that they did, the likes of Kasri, the likes of Kone and, and Kirchhoff, they knew what else was needed to make them successful and how they would benefit the overall team. And again, it, it just goes back to the notion of having a plan, which Newcastle haven't had for a few years now. Steve? Yeah. Go ahead. Chris. That's a great point, and I think and I think Big Sam, uh, he had a couple of months coming in in October to kind of assess the squad, and he figured out what they needed. Uh, I think and Doy, Damon Doy is a player he thought would actually help them a little more than he has. Uh, but it did motivate Defoe and Borini to once again find 
find their form. And then the other three signings, Kirchhoff, Kone, and uh, Kaziri, have all been upgrades and have all fit in well and, and kind of uh, adapted to English football very quickly. Uh, it, 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 we talked about with Memphis Depay, sometimes there's an acclimation process. I think uh, Allardyce identified players that he thought would fit in with their squad and fit in in the uh, physical nature of English football better than maybe some of the other targets. So, look, uh, I, I've been touting Sunderland for weeks, saying that they were going to get over the hump. And then finally, when I began to lose faith, which was last week, right? <laughs> the food, I, I've been saying for three months, yeah. Sunderland, that there wasn't really a relegation fight. They were going to get out. Allardyce had them well organized. Uh, they were just going to, they would have to just turn some draws into wins. And when I finally said, you know what, I think it's, I think they're finally going to go down. They turn in this performance. But I think the most important thing, and maybe Chris can speak to this as someone who's covered the team closely, the fighting spirit that Allardyce has uh, has instilled in this team. There are so many matches where they've looked dead, where they've looked beaten, where they've come back and gotten a late draw, where they've come from behind and gotten three points like this match. Or even if they've lost, they've gone down fighting. Uh, I think think this thing might be over on on Wednesday. I know we'll, we'll preview that game in a little bit. Yeah, I, I think those good points made. So basically, Karthik, it is your fault uh, that Newcastle are going down. I think I agree with that. Uh, I, I think I give a lot of credit also to Defoe and Burini. Uh, Defoe, we know, has been magnificent for Sunderland this season. I think that was goal number 14 or maybe 15 even uh, for him. He's been excellent the last few games in particular. It's almost single-handedly has been able to keep them in in the relegation battle as opposed to getting relegated. So big credit there. We have to start talking about Defoe. He hasn't been on the right clubs, right? Because he was at West Ham and he was at Spurs and he was at Pompey for a little bit now. Uh, Sunderland, we have to start talking about him as one of the great strikers in Premier League history. Absolutely. Honestly. Absolutely. Look at where he's been and look at how many goals he's scored and the circumstances and maybe the players around him. Uh, I think historically we're, we have to have a, maybe a different assessment of this player than many had in, in, during his playing uh, period. I definitely agree with that. Uh, I mean, I think the the one black mark he had against him was some of his performances in his second spell at Spurs. I think that's what counted against him. Even though his goal ratio was very good, uh, this was the 2009 to 2014 era, uh, Jermaine Defoe, I think some of his performances let him down. And then, of course, what happened at Toronto... Uh, where people expected the world of him. Uh, and he, again, his goals ratio was decent, a goal every other game. Uh, but some of the other stuff let him down. But I totally agree with you. And I think even at 33, Karthik, I think we'll be talking about, if Sunderland does go down, I think Defoe will be the first player that's snapped up by another uh, team because he guarantees you goals. So uh, I agree with you. All right, let's, uh, let's update our listeners on the rest of the leagues around Europe. Uh, a comfortable 5 nothing win for Barcelona over Espanyol keeps the Catalans at the top of La Liga. A surprising loss to bottom of the table Levante meant that Atletico's title challenge is as good as over as they find themselves three points behind Barcelona, but with an insurmountable goal difference. Real Madrid, however, did manage to beat Valencia 3-2 after a late surge by Valencia couldn't cancel out the goals by Cristiano Ronaldo and Karim Benzema. Real Madrid are a point behind Barcelona going into the final game day, and their goal difference is uh, now further in the favor of Barcelona. So really, uh, Real Madrid will need to win and Barcelona will need to lose realistically for Real Madrid to win the title. In Bundesliga, a win over Ingolstadt for Bayern meant that they are eight points clear of Dortmund, who lost by a goal to 15th place Frankfurt Eintracht. 
and a 1-1 draw with Brighton, and I think a lot of our listeners already know this, meant that Middlesbrough will be joining Burnley in the Premier League next season. Brighton, on the other hand, have a chance to yet be promoted as they join the playoffs against Hull, Derby, and Sheffield Wednesday. The initial round of playoffs will be played May 13th to 17th with the final played uh, the finalists playing each other on May 28th. Uh, and before I get to Serie A, really quickly, Chris Karthik, uh, your favorites f- for that playoff. I- I- I'm going with Hull City. Chris? Yeah, I think Hull City as well. I think they did something that not a lot of teams are, are able or wise enough to do, which is they held on to the better component of their, their Premier League plays and didn't lose a lot of them. Mm. Karthik? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Hull as well. But uh, Derby is still dangerous if you look at their squad. They've just underachieved this season. So of the four teams, they're probably the most talented side. Uh, Hull, they'll have uh, the most experienced side. Brighton under Chris Hutton have had the best season. Unfortunate for them. I, this is one of those seasons I wish there wasn't a playoff. They should just take the top three teams right. because the gap between Brighton in third and, and right. Hull uh, or Derby or for sports was pretty massive. Yeah. And then finally, at the time of recording, uh, Serie A has Napoli winning and champions Juventus losing at halftime. And those games will wrap up by the time we finish recording this podcast. When we come back for the final section, uh, we'll review the rest of the performance, uh, rest of the results in the league and do our previews. We'll be right back with the final section of the World Soccer Talk podcast. We're going to start this section with a little bit of a conversation that our listeners will uh, want to hear. In the last section, we were talking about Sunderland, but we didn't bring out bring up the conversation about DeAndre Yedlin, U.S. men's national team player who was involved in this game and, and had an assist. Depending on who you ask, it's an assist, but it, it was a deflection, really, that led to the goal. So uh, coming to you, Chris, uh, as someone who's watched both Newcastle and Sunderland closely, and we'll come to Karthik after that. One of the things that you said before we started recording is something that I feel very strongly about, which is that every time one of these players, Yedlin, etc., especially Yedlin, I feel, has any sort of a, even a halfway decent performance, it's a little bit blown out of proportion. Uh, and yeah, so let, let's start with that framework. Yeah, I, I think that you just need to give them more space to grow. It's, it feels a little bit like an overprotective parent that when they achieve something it's then given an exalted status i think certainly for deandre it's been an interesting season in the sense that he had that moment in the derby where it's his foul throw that leads to the the equalizer he's done well to recover from that though Mm -hmm. and i think in general he's even talked about it himself that he's learned a lot from sam allardyce from a defensive perspective which if we look at yedlin's career that's always been the issue realistically it's not as his issues going forward it's it's only ever what he's doing when he's uh in the his own penalty box yeah, Karthik, I, think I think for for his long term trajectory, he's, he's not going to really succeed at Tottenham. That's the problem. Uh, at at Sunderland, yeah. Oh, oh you mean uh, uh, he's on loan, right? Right now from Sunderland. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's so, my concern is that that right now Tottenham have a very settled side, and and again they have two great fullbacks in in Kyle Walker and then Kieran Trippier behind them, both mm-hmm. vying for that one spot. You put someone in there again who I think still needs more games. It it's I can see it going one of two potential ways. He'll either be someone like Andros Townsend or someone like Harry Kane in the Mm. sense that I think he's going to get a lot of loan spells while he's with Tottenham. That can be the making of you in the sense that it was with Harry Kane. It can also mean it's impossible for you to ever build continuity in your parent club like it did for Andros Townsend to the point where they just end up selling you. For, yeah, for, same, for with, same with same uh, with Zeki Friars who came from Man United to Tottenham. Yeah, we've had a lot of guys like that. You know, Ryan Mason 
Watson was loaned out seven or eight times, and he's finally kind of settled. Uh, Simon Dawkins, who's now a DP here in Major League Soccer, was loaned out uh, uh, several times for Spurs and never did settle. In fact, he was loaned out to uh, MLS at one point. So uh, it, it, you're right. I think the Kane versus um, versus uh, Townsend analogy is very good. It's a matter of which way it's going to go. I, I think it is just exciting to see that he is able to crack a Premier League lineup and consistently play for a manager as demanding as Allardyce. Although it should be noted, Allardyce had concerns about him, which is why uh, Emmanuel Abui was signed right. uh, after having not played for a year. And then it turned out there was this um, situation with Abui where he's now been banned for football for a year because right. of a non-payment to an agent. I, I must admit I have some sympathy to the player for the player in that because I, I have to say – and normally when those things happen, it's the agent who's being a thief or a shark or something. But uh, nonetheless, he was banned. So uh, then they had to they had to ride out the season with the Edlin. And you know, it, might, it might be of great benefit to uh, both the player and to uh, the U.S. men's national team program. Yeah, I think the what you guys have said is absolutely right. I, I remember being uh, doing World so- uh, doing uh, World Cup interviews on, on different uh, radio shows back in 2014, and we were talking about Yedlin with exactly the same analysis, which is that he's terrific going forward, has pace to burn, uh, has a trick or two, but it's beyond that defensively, especially if you're going to play him as a fullback, uh, there's a lot for him to improve on. So uh, I think that that is fair. Let's go back to talking about the rest of the league's uh, results. We'll start first, uh, Karthik, with you with a Palace-Stoke game. Uh, Charlie Adam popping up to score a goal after an excellent Passed by Arnautovic. Uh, you and I have talked about Alan Pardew and, and the fact that Palace has struggled at home, uh, especially throughout the season. This was a pretty awesome result for them. Yeah, now we have to start raising questions about Stoke. They're the team that's really in a tailspin. I'm not sure if folks have noticed how uh, how poorly they performed the right. last month, month and a half, and uh, shipping goals and, and just looking lackluster at times. So uh, questions about Sparky. I mean, this is a team that, that seems to have... Uh, They've hit a wall or perhaps even regressed it in, in the latter part of the season. But important result for Palace. You didn't want them going into that FA Cup final against uh, Manchester United at Wembley, uh, having lost or, or drawn their last however many league matches. So a uh, good result for them, and uh, they'll push on. Their eyes are on Wembley, obviously. Yeah, the, the, big, the big player that I think Man United will be looking at is Bolasi, who was terrific in this game. Uh, excellent run from him. Just a kind of direct... Well, I, I, I saw today Leicester linked with Bolasi. That would be a, a good one with mm. them going into Champions League next year. Yeah, that, that's a good shout for sure. Let's talk, Chris, about the Burnmouth 1-1 draw with West Brom. Uh, not much at stake for either team. Uh, last week, I talked about how frustrated I get when I see Evans playing at left back. And on cue, he produces an excellent cross uh, that led to the Rondon goal, as well as uh, another uh, cross that almost led to another goal for West Brom. So good performance uh, from West Brom, from Evans in particular. Uh, your thoughts? West Brom are essentially WD-40. They're not pretty, <laughs> but they're effective. And <laughs> I don't think they'll ever get relegated under Tony Pulis. I also don't think they'll ever improve drastically <laughs> or grow under Tony Pulis. That's, that is essentially the quandary you're left in when you hire him. And I think, again, we've talked before about this is why it tends to go sour for him is that eventually people tire of just surviving. Mm. They want to thrive as well. And again, you, you talk about the likes of Rondon who've come in and to go from playing in a Champions League team to playing in a team like that much must be very difficult for a player because, again, they're not the most creative in midfield. They're 
they're staffed by essentially 11 piano carriers, whereas normally you're supposed to have a few piano players in there as well. And he's <laughs> he's tried. I mean, he's bought the likes of Stefan Sessegnon. The problem with Stefan Sessegnon is that he's inconsistent, notoriously inconsistent. In fact, it's, it's haunting PSG. It's a big issue for him at Sunderland as well. And it just means that, again, they're, they're grinding out results. And uh, I never felt they were in trouble of being relegated um, when they had that bad form. I also was never kind of thinking of them as, as having this late season resurgence and playing some beautiful football. They'll get the job done. That's what they'll always do. And I think for a team like West Brom that as recently as the last sort of five or six years was a, a bit of a yo-yo club, I imagine they just appreciate stability more than anything, even if the, the fans themselves aren't too fond of it. Yeah, another player that had a terrific game was Arte Boric. Uh, saved a penalty, saved a long-range effort from Gardner. So a good result for both teams gets them both a point. Let's talk about Liverpool-Watford, another game uh, with little bearing on either team's future. Liverpool really are looking ahead to the final. And uh, as we talked about with Watford, um, even though they, they had a good result last week, they struggled in this game. The goal came, Karthik, from an old-school football, uh, almost like... Um, What's a good analogy? I guess Crouch last week scored a goal like this with Stoke uh, knocking down Ternatovic. Same thing with Benteke playing down to Joe Allen, who scores uh, a, a rare goal in his Liverpool career. The Welsh Xavi is back, Karthik. Yes, and uh, of course he played alongside the English Xavi at <laughs> Swansea, Leon Britton. But uh, yeah, everybody who plays in the uh, Swansea side is a Xavi. But this showed a little bit of the value. Uh, Benteke getting the start. Origi is injured. Uh, they're hoping to have him back for the Champions League final. Certainly Belgium is hoping they have him for the Euros. But Origi is injured and, and, and Sturridge, uh, you know, the situation with him. So and Danny Ings has been out forever now. Benteke gets a very rare start. And you see some of the value he brings. Now, that is not the way Jurgen Klopp wants to play. Right. But it's useful. It's... it's uh, it's one of those things where he, it, it, there, there was this, this uh, talk he wasn't getting goals. When he finally gave way to Origi uh, in the starting lineup in, in, in uh, January, late January, early February, it was, uh, it, he was getting some goals. He just was a misfit tactically for the other things they were doing off the ball. And, and this is, I think, another example of what he can do if you play to his strengths. Um, as for Watford, uh, Kiki Sanchez Flores playing out the string, I think, uh, done a very good job this season with that team, but we know how the Pozo family is, so the chances of him returning are about as good as Roberto Martinez's chances of returning. He'll be replaced, and uh, we could be talking about Watford being relegated next season. I think it's a mistake to let him go, but uh, all indications are, and given the history of uh, their ownership at, uh, at their various clubs, uh, that he'll be gone. Uh, Chris, Norwich plays Watford. Let's go into the previews here. Norwich plays Watford midweek. Uh, Norwich has a lot more at stake here. They, they still have a chance. Uh, it's a very, very slim chance. Very slim chance to stay in the uh, Premier League. Uh, but based on what I saw against United, it doesn't even seem like they are really up for it. There wasn't a lot of drive at United. I think uh, we talked about how poor United were, but Norwich themselves didn't look like they really cared. So uh, very sad. And honestly, I'm I'm going to say this is probably going to be a draw, right? Norwich-Watford. I, I can see it being that. It's, it's not a win to, to Watford. I think the, the problem for Norwich is they had that victory against, I believe it was Newcastle, where they were kind of in the strongest position and they just didn't capitalise on it. They they picked up a few bad results. They also lost to Sunderland, which again, if you're losing 
the games against your your rivals there, right. there's a strong chance you're going down. Um, and you know, I find it very very interesting to to see some Norwich fans talk about the ambition of the club, um, and and the lack there of it really, because again, they bought Tim closer in January, they bought Bacani or loaned Bacani, sorry, in, in January, and that's the issue with with Norwich is that actually, if you look at their summer business, there wasn't a huge amount, and I think. Part of the problem was is the last time they came up, they famously bought Ricky, Ricky Van Walswingel for about eight and a half million, which right. I think was their most expensive purchase ever or club record. And they kind of got their fingers burned with that one a bit, and he didn't pan out the way he was supposed to. So uh, again, it's my opinion. I just sense maybe a little bit of trepidation in terms of going back to that European market and investing heavily in, in players because you're not entirely sure what you're you're getting. The problem with that is if if you don't take a risk, you're unlikely to get a reward off the back of it. And that's what we've seen with Norwich is they've given opportunities, could even parallel Arsenal in that sense. They've, they've given opportunities to players that have proven already they're not the quality of the Premier League in terms of keeping a team up and keeping them safe. Guys like Cameron Jerome, Gary O'Neill, they, they're industrious. They'll work hard. They'll run around a lot. Have they got the quality required, though, to to pick out a key pass or, or put the, the ball in the net consistently? The answer, unfortunately, is no. And, and Norwich are, are learning that the hard way. And I do feel sorry for their fans because, again, this summer is going to be a huge summer for the clubs that maybe don't have as much financial pull or anything like that in terms of the TV deal. It could have been great for Norwich. It's not going to be now. They're going to have to go back down and, and rebuild again, which is is unfortunate. Karthik Sunderland plays Everton, a game that if they, they win, I think they, they pretty much uh, secure uh, Premier League, uh, uh, that they stay in the Premier League. Um, and the, the, what's standing against them, if I remember correctly, is that they have a very poor record against Everton. I think they've won maybe one, maybe two games against Everton uh, in the last 10 to 15 games. So, But having said that, we have discussed the fallings, the failings of Everton and, and their manager so given their brilliant result, that is Sunderland, Sunderland's brilliant result against Chelsea, uh, do you see them securing Premier League, uh, retaining a Premier League status after this game? Well, I, I do, but I think the neutral on us all wants to see them uh, drop points in this game so it's open for the final uh, <laughs> frenzied uh, Sunday of the season, particularly if, if, if uh, Norwich gets a win against uh, uh, Watford, which they, they very well might. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, playing at Carroll Road. So uh, we'll see uh, on this one. I mean, I think uh, what we're finding from Sunderland is that they're all they're very tidy at the back, although this was the one game they weren't, this game against uh, uh, Chelsea. Against Chelsea. Uh, but they, uh, they're they able to go forward and, and create chances. Now, creating chances against Everton is is uh, usually leads to goals. And uh, if Everton uh, don't turn up, as they did midweek, or they did on Saturday against Leicester, I mean, that's that's... That's probably the uh, least competitive 3-1 match I've ever seen in my life, right. <laughs> the Leicester-Everton uh, match. It, it just felt like a coronation, and, and one of these, uh, they had brought a youth club out to uh, to uh, have this celebration of the champions, right? Yeah. And they could just kick around with. That's what it felt like. I, I that's, agree. That's, I agree. Yeah, no, and I, if Everton show, turn up that way uh, uh, at the Stadium of Light, then uh, Sunderland will win it, and it'll be all over. Uh, the uh, The question, though, now is, so many of these Everton players are probably in the shop window. Stones, Lukaku, Barkley are the three you mentioned. Maybe some others. Do they really want to go out 
with a whimper this season, or they didn't want to take one great last chance to put themselves in people's minds. Or is that what the Euros are, are for this summer? Right. Who knows? Yeah, it's hard to tell. With I feel like we we uh, kind of forget that these players, at the end of the day, realize that they're going to be they're going to be wanted by big clubs regardless. So I don't think they're going to worry too much about how they play against Sunderland. Unfortunately, I think a lot of these players are looking at the head to the Euros and making sure they don't get injured. I think that's what it looked like when I saw Lukaku play against uh, uh, Leicester for sure. The team that's right, uh, Belgium has a lot of injuries, so right, exactly. uh, he he's probably wanting to stay fit for that reason. Mm-hmm. Leicester plays Chelsea, the team that Sunderland beat, Chris. When we were previewing that game, we were talking, we were wondering which Chelsea will show up because uh, they had had a brilliant result the previous uh, week uh, and then had a very uh, large, a poor game, I guess, against Sunderland, the fact that they lost. So in this game, Liverpool have uh, will be heavily rotated, as we know, as uh, Klopp has been trying to do. He's trying to bring in lots of young players and give uh, keep the, the main players out of firing range so they don't get injured. Uh, and for Chelsea, a little more at stake, a little more uh, stake at, uh, in terms of pride. We know John Terry will be missing. His his Chelsea career is over. Uh, so talk to me about Liverpool-Chelsea, Chris. I think Kartik said it before we started. This is probably the first time in a long time that this game has had nothing really riding on it. Mm-hmm. And nothing actually other than the pride to play for. I think, again, when we talk about the rotation. Shea Ojo, who's come in, recently for, for Liverpool during some Premier League games. I've been very impressed with him. Um, he was at, I think, Wolves last year for a little loan spell. And he looked very good there as well. Very physical, very powerful. Um, reminds me a little bit of another quite promising youngster, Oliver. I almost thought you were uh, going to say a great tactician, the way Brendan Rodgers would have said it. <laughs> He's full of character. He um, reminds me a little bit of Olivia Nisham, the, the Man City youngster who's a Jenner in the minute as well, kind of a very big, powerful player who can play wide or, or centrally. Again, I think from a Liverpool perspective, this is a great opportunity to really evaluate the squad because I think Klopp can can almost just excuse the, the end of the Premier League season as him being on a bit of a fact-finding mission. They've got the, the Europa League final to play for. I think, again, if he loses that, we can discuss that at another time. But at the minute, he's just trying to evaluate everyone in the squad because obviously we've seen Jordan Rossiter to leave or it's being reported, I should say, in a Liverpool right. echo that he's going to sign for Rangers. Um, so there's one youngster that was kind of on the fringes. It was, it seemed he's gone. You've now got a space to potentially fill if you would like. So it's things like that that I think he'll, he'll try and learn with these games because I was talking to, um, some of the, the New York Red Bulls youngsters, funnily enough, about the big derby game they've got with DC United next weekend. And they both kind of agreed, the two lads, Alex Mule and Sean Davis, that those games are great because you really learn a lot about yourself and what you're like as a player and how you handle the pressure of the situation. That's what he'll be gleaming from this. And for Chelsea, unfortunately, all their youngsters are away on loan. Um, so it's it's going to be a difficult one for, for Conte to try and assess in, in friendlies next season. Um, if they can get Andreas Christensen back, I think they've got a potential replacement for John Terry already. I think Terry's actually said as much himself. The short term, though, it's, it's deciding what you do with the big players. There's a lot less opportunity for Chelsea to decide those things right now because, again, it's it's going to be stuff that the content will need to come in and sort. Well, I, the thing about Christensen is, again, this shows Chelsea's policy. They've sent him out on a two-year loan with, I believe, no recall clause. That's crazy. I didn't even yeah. know you could do two back, back-to-back two-year loans. Well, I guess the United did with Falcao, didn't they? So two-year loans. Wow. Yeah, they, they, that's in, actually that's the bone of contention at the minute is that 
Actually, Gladbach have said he's he's not going anywhere. He's a big part of the team. His dad has, has said that he doesn't really know what's happening. Christian to himself says, I think fairly honestly and, and quite admirably, that he appreciates the opportunity that Gladbach have given him and that if he's going to go back to Chelsea not to play, there's not a great you know, uh, point in doing that. So, it, again, it's it's very difficult because, again, Chelsea loan out so many youngsters um, to the likes of Vitesse and all these different clubs and it just leaves you questioning, how, how do you break into the first team when you're not playing at, at an elite club for the most part? You're playing either in a lesser league or a lesser team. It's just so, so difficult because even guys like Charlie Masonda, who has been, for the most part, I think quite impressive for, for Real Betis, mm-hmm. where's his pathway to the first team? It's It's got to come with faith and consistency. I don't see that happening at Chelsea right now, so I hope Conte changes that. Yeah, and Christensen is the one player they've loaned to a, to a high-level club in a comparable league, and Mucha Gladbach is, is, is better, is a better team than Chelsea right now. And he's been an integral player, uh, uh, first-team player in that squad this season. So uh, it, it, it's one of those things where, uh, as we've seen with some other guys that Chelsea have loaned out or sold, that uh, they don't actually value their players and their youngsters the way they should, the way that other people do. Yeah, Karthik just very easily sh- threw shade at Chelsea with that <laughs> Mujerglatback comment. That was amazing. Uh, the final game we need to preview, guys, is the West Ham United game. This is the oh, sorry, West Ham United versus Manchester United game. Uh, United, Manchester United, that is, will be missing Fellaini, and arguably that's a player that they could have used in this game, a, a combative player who can get around and defend on set pieces which we know West Ham is very strong at uh would probably hurt them but what will hurt Manchester United even more in my opinion is the fact that we will almost definitely definitely be missing Anthony Martial for this game who got injured in the build up to Saturday's game so for me guys there's only one question that I I want to ask you and and this is it for me I think we will get a sense of how m- of Louis van Gaal's man management in this game. Because at the end of the day, Manchester United know that if they win this game, they're pretty certain, because with Bournemouth being the final game, pretty certain to get champ- a champ- the fourth place. And if United cannot show up for this game, if we see the same draws from United, I think it really goes back to Louis van Gaal. And uh, Karthik, let me start with you on that. Are we good? Uh, we don't know what United will show up, but we know that we can make, we can interpret Louis van Hall's ability to motivate this team depending on how United plays, even in the first half. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with your sentiment on that. I think this is a defining and judgment game for him, and it is the whole final Premier League match at a storied Premier League ground, the Bowen ground. And But there's all to play for for Manchester United, and with the loss this week, there isn't all to play for for West Ham unless. They're concerned about Europa League. You saw this season that they felt like exiting Europa League was probably better for their Premier League uh, hopes, and, and, and it proved to be the case, uh, than, uh, than staying in that competition. So they may not put a great deal of value on the result for in terms of where it, it puts them in the league, but they will uh, certainly uh, on, on the farewell to their ground as they prepare to move into the Olympic Stadium and potentially become one of the giants of English football. Uh, with that stadium move, so uh, all the pressure is on Von Hall. This is this is uh, this sets up nicely, and if he wins, well, and United give a performance in in the process, uh, then uh, he's probably safe, and and uh, you can say progress is made, and and uh, tick a box. If not, 
then uh, he very well could be judged harshly, especially if he doesn't win the uh, FA Cup final. So I don't want to say that this is a a job deciding match for him, but it is probably a job defining match for him. Mm-hmm. Chris, we don't usually do score predictions on World Soccer Talk, but I'm going to have to ask you score prediction for West Ham United, Manchester United. Two one, Manchester United. Karthik, I'm going to say two two, uh, unless uh, unless there's some sort of uh, remarkable defensive show from Manchester United. I think West Ham get create chances, create opportunities. It's going to be a, a frenzied atmosphere. So I'm going to say draw. Yeah, and I'm going to go with a West Ham win because I'm well aware of what Manchester United has been doing under Van Hall and uh, also my lack of a belief in the fact that Louis Van Hall will ha- be able to motivate his players at all. Uh, at the end of the day, my take is if if you want a player, if you want a team of 11 robots to win the Premier League or to play football, you want Louis Van Hall as your manager. But if you want human beings, uh, he might not be the best man for the job. In order to review those games and preview the final weekend of the Premier League, join us midweek as myself and probably Gabe Smith or and or two of the gentlemen tonight will be joining you. If you want to get in touch with us with questions and comments, find Chris at khanaj, Karthik at KKFLA737, me at Nipun Chopra7, and World Soccer Talk at W Soccer Talk. Until then, on behalf of the gaffer, uh, of the gaffer Chris Harris, Kristen Hanaj, and myself, Karthik. Enjoy your football. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.